Luke chapter number 4 this evening. And I want to preach to you for a few moments from the temptation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, I, want to, I believe we can gain some help from this passage. As I began to study it today, and I really had no intention of preaching on this this evening, but as I began to study it, began to see some things in it. Isn't it wonderful how you can read the Word of God, a passage that you have read thousands of times, and yet the Spirit of God will show you things that you had never seen before, things that will give you help, and uh, present truth. Somebody say amen to that, present truth. There is such a thing as present truth, and I believe we can gain some of it tonight through the Word of God. Luke chapter number 4, and let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Bible says, "...in Jesus, being full of the Holy Ghost, returned from Jordan, and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, being forty days tempted of the devil. And in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended he afterward hungered. The devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread." Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. And the devil, taking him up into a high mountain, showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. The devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them. For that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine." Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. And he brought him to Jerusalem, and set him on a pinnacle of the temple, and said unto him, Thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. And when the devil had ended all the temptation, he departed from him for a season. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank You for Your precious Word. I want to thank You tonight, Lord, that it's perfect and that it's inspired. Lord, I want to thank You that it's all sufficient for my needs, that it can satisfy me in a way that nothing else can. And Father, that You're able to speak through it and to my life, Father, I just want to praise You for the miracle that is this Bible we hold in our hands. Help us to approach it reverently this evening. Lord, help us to approach it honestly this evening and sincerely. And Father, most of all, help us to approach it humbly this evening, knowing it has the power to change us. And Lord, You have the will to change us through it. Lord, we love You and we ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. As we read through Luke chapter number 4, we find the Lord Jesus in a very comforting position for you and I. I've preached I don't know how many messages on this, and I don't know how many messages you've heard on it, probably quite a few. But as I studied it this evening, I began to see some interesting truths concerning temptation in your life and in mine. You know, an entire hour, two, three, four hours, well, really an eternity could be spent just laying this experience beside several other experiences in the Bible. And there's much interest in doing that. I believe when you lay this uh, instance beside the Mount of Transfiguration, you gain some, some very insightful truths. I mean, if you stop and think about what is taking place here, this is the Creator of all the universe, and yet He's hungering. This is the Son of God and yet He's suffering temptation. This is the one by whom all things were created, 
and yet he's using Scripture to rebuke the devil. And in fact, we might say this, here we see the living Word employing the written Word in a spiritual warfare. I would say that at the Mount of Transfiguration, we might say that we see the most human expression of divinity. Certainly on the Mount of Transfiguration, uh, when Christ was transfigured in His glory, and there was a voice from heaven that said, This is My beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye Him. No doubt that was the most divine that we would ever see a human being being. But then here at the moment of temptation, we see the most divine expression of humanity. I'm always touched by what it says in verse number 2. It says, "...being forty days tempted of the devil, and in those days he did eat nothing, and when they were ended, he afterward hung, showing the weakness of body at least, if not the weakness of constitution, certainly not the weakness of will, but even the Son of God, his body ached with hunger and with pain through what he was enduring." And it is at this moment of weakness that Satan feels he has an audience with the Son of God. And just by way of introduction, I would notice with you this evening that we see first off a promise of temptation in these passages. You say, now wait a minute, preacher, I don't see a promise anywhere. No, it's an implicit promise. You see, if Satan would tempt the Son of God, you better believe he'll tempt me and you. I mean, if the Son of God could be tempted in such a way, you and I, we're going to be tempted. And if you think you'll never endure temptation, you just hang in a little longer and you'll be proved wrong. We're all tempted and every one of us faces temptation at times. We see a promise of temptation, but we see a progression in temptation here. It's interesting to note, and we'll talk a little bit about it in the message, the different ways in which Satan tempts the Son of God. And he begins with a physical temptation. And we might say it this way. John explained it to us this way when he said that all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And here in this passage, we see this uh, threefold unholy trinity of temptation that Satan is employing. But then I'd say that we see a pattern for temptation here. In other words, as Satan is tempting the Son of God and the ways in which he tempts them, tempts him, I believe we can gain an understanding of how Satan might approach to me and you. After all, it's not you and me, really, that Satan hates. It's Christ living through us that he hates. Amen? The world doesn't necessarily hate me and you. It hates Christ that lives through us. And so, in a sense, could we maybe say that even to this day when Satan tempts me and you, he's still trying to tempt the Son of God. And so, when he tempts me and you, he tempts us in the same way. And when he tempts me and you, our only tool and resource and weapon is the same thing that the Son of God uses. Isn't it interesting? Now, Christ could have spoken him out of existence. It would have taken no effort whatsoever. It would not have exerted even a minutia of divine power and ability to destroy Satan in that moment. But rather, he equipped himself with the very thing he expects you and me to be equipped with. You see, he could have spoken him out of existence, but me and you, we can't speak him out of existence. And we're going to talk here in a little bit. You know, you hear a lot of people uh, giving mystical power to the words that we use. I think there can be a danger in that. I believe that, that the things that we say are important, don't you? But the ways in which Christ rebukes Satan... Understand, Satan's not scared of Scripture. Listen carefully. Satan's not scared of Scripture. He's scared of truth. Now, if you're not careful, you'll mishear what I just said. 
In fact, we find times in this passage where Satan is misquoting Scripture to the Son of God. Or we might say this way, he's quoting it out of context. And so when Christ begins to rebuke him, it is not mystical words that he is rebuking him with necessarily. It's not abracadabra. It's not open sesame. It's not some sort of spell or some sort of uh, divination. But rather it is the truth that he faces Satan with that rebukes him. I want us to notice a few things this evening, and I'll try to be brief, quick as I can. I know some of y'all think I preach real long, amen, but I'm, uh, I'm going to try to be brief this evening. I want you to notice the first thing that Satan tempts him with. Look with me in verse number 3. Now, we know he's hungry. He is at a moment of physical weakness, and Satan approaches to him, and the devil said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, command this stone that it be made bread. And Jesus answered him, saying, It is written that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. Now, I'd say first off that Satan was trying to get him to accept the sensual over the spiritual. You understand that when Satan tempts us, he's always trying to trade with us. Anytime that Satan approaches to you or me with a temptation, what he's really saying is this, What I have for you is better than what God has for you. You and I as believers, we understand that obedience to God is profitable. It's fruitful. It yieldeth the peaceable fruits of righteousness. We understand that when we're obedient to God, that the God of peace is with us. We understand the fruition that comes from being obedient to the Word of God. And when Satan comes to us speaking lies, as he always does, listen to me, don't get discouraged when the devil says something to you because you know right away that it's a lie. Amen? There's no greater proof that something is alive than for Satan to speak it to you. And so Satan comes near to the Son of God, and he's trying to trade something with him. Isn't it interesting that he spent 40 days in the wilderness? This was not an exercise of personal will. Now, let me say that in the Son of God, uh, there is no disharmony between His will and the will of the Spirit and the will of the Father. Do you understand what I just said? There is no disharmony. And in no way, when Christ is submissive to the will of the Father, is it an implication that His will was ever at aught with the Father. But God is trying to teach us something when it expresses that. Can I give you, for instance, in the garden, when Christ says, not my will, but thy will. He's not saying that because His will is different than His Father's will. He's saying that because sometimes your will and my will is going to be different than the Father's will. And He is an example to us through the things which he suffered. So in the same way that he was yielded to the will of his Father, you and I are to be yielded to the will of our Father. Now, I'm not trying to imply that Christ would have ever done anything in a rogue or renegade sense, but Scripture is very careful to tell us that this was not just a casual stroll through the wilderness. This was not just a backwoods camping trip. But verse number uh, 2 or verse number 1 says that he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. He is in the will of God. He's doing the will of God. But in the midst of the will of God, there are moments of weakness. Now, what was the purpose in going to the wilderness? Well, we understand that He fasted during that time, don't we? Now, I understand that we got a real problem with not fasting in America. Amen? And uh, let me say we got a real problem with some other, you know, some of us believers. I mean, it's evident who's fasting and who ain't. You skinny people might think you got everyone tricked, but you don't. Uh, fasting is uh, it ought to be practiced more than it is. Amen? Amen. Fasting is a scriptural uh, practice. 
if you've ever spent any time fasting, you understand that fasting is not for the purpose of proving something to God. Fasting is for the purpose of proving something to your flesh. Fasting is not for the purpose of impressing God. Fasting is for the purpose of suppressing your flesh. It is not to prove to God that you're worthy of Him answering prayers, but it's to prove to your flesh that your flesh is not going to hinder you from obtaining things through prayer from God. And so for 40 days, Christ has been fasting. If you've ever fasted, you know there is a spiritual keenness and awareness that tends to accompany it. Or could I put it this way, there is a blessing, most certainly, that comes from fasting. Christ is enjoying this blessing, no doubt. And Satan approaches to him and he says, I want to trade with you. And he speaks first off of the bread that is available to him. He says, you know, you're the Son of God. There's stones everywhere. And you could command this stone to be made bread if you wish to do so. Now, let me say this, that there's even a beautiful picture in here of grace above law. Because Christ did not need a stone to make bread appear, and Satan knew this. But here we have a symbolic picture of obtaining from the stony points of the law that which might be our daily consumption. But what does Christ say? It's not by bread alone, but by every word of God. It's not through the law, but it's through grace that we obtain satisfaction and sustenance. But essentially what Satan is trying to do is he's saying in a moment you could be consuming bread. The pain would be gone. The hunger would be gone. And you know what he's saying? He's saying, after all, that's what really matters anyway, isn't it? He's trying to skew his perspective and his priorities. Let me say that for the new believer, often this is the main battle that you face. Simply getting to the place where you can walk by faith enough to understand that the blessing of God is far better than the bread of the flesh. He had a choice to make. Let me tell you something. You've got that choice to make. It was a a, a mistake that Esau made that he always regretted. He had a spiritual birthright. It was promised from God on high, and it was available through Isaac, his father. But in a moment of hunger and weakness, he sold his birthright for a bowl of soup. He chose that which, would, uh, that which would appease his flesh rather than that which would build the spiritual things in his life. Let me tell you something. Those two things are directly contradictory to each other. Now, I want you to understand something. I don't even know if I can really explain this in the right way. There was nothing wrong with eating bread. In fact, we find that there are many times when the Lord ate bread in His earthly ministry. And we might even say this, that if eating bread was a sin, then He would have facilitated sin because He broke bread for thousands. It's not that what He was doing was inherently wrong. It's that what He was, would have partaken in would have been immediately wrong. What Satan was trying to get him to do, he was at that point. And, I, and again, I don't even know if I know how to explain this right. And I'm just going to trust the Lord to help me. But when you're fasting, there are, uh, there are ridges you have to overcome. Somebody, if you know what I mean, say amen to that. There are ridges you have to overcome. That first day is quite difficult. And then the second day is pretty difficult. And you hit day number three, if you can survive that, you're all right. And uh, oftentimes with these long fasts, similar to what the Lord would have been partaking in, you'd reach even a plateau uh, where you maybe wouldn't even give too much thought to food. But He is at the place now, after 40 days without food, that His body is physically shutting down. And you understand that at this place, He's having to choose between spiritual life and temporal death, or temporal life and spiritual death. 
He is at that moment having to choose between that which will sustain his flesh or that which is sustaining his spirit. When you or I are faced with temptation, what the devil's really trying to tell us is this. What I've got for you is far better than what, the de- what God's got for you. Your flesh is a liar just like the devil is. Do you know that? And man, let me tell you something. When you do without food, your flesh puts up a fuss. I mean, it don't take long. We call it, we, you know what we call it now? Not hungry. We call it hangry. Somebody say amen. If you're married, you know what that's like. And, uh, I mean, it's tough, man. And you know that's your flesh saying you're going to die if you don't eat. You're going to die if you don't eat. But you know what you'll find? If you'll just deny that for a little while, you'll find out that your flesh was lying to you. At this point, Christ is enjoying the spiritual blessing of an intense time of precious and pivotal communion with His Father. And Satan comes along and says, what I've got is better for you. The central is better than the spiritual. Let me remind you that for every single believer, that the spiritual is far better than the sensual. Let me say that the first temptation deals with obtaining that which is sensual over that which is spiritual. But look with me at the next one, verse number 5. The devil taking him up into an high mountain showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. And the devil said unto him, All this power will I give thee, and the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will give it, I will I give it. If thou therefore wilt worship me, all shall be thine. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Get thee behind me, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Let me say the first temptation was the sensual over the spiritual, but now Satan is trying to get him to choose the immediate over the eternal. It's interesting the way the Bible says it in verse number 5. It says that he showed unto him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time. There could be some debate as to what that means, but I'll tell you what I believe it means. I believe what Satan is trying to do, he's showing him a present glimpse of all the world powers. And he's saying, if you'll bow down right now, I'll give every bit of this to you. Oftentimes the battle that we face in temptation is a question of whether we want to enjoy comfort now or enjoy rewards later. Sometimes, and I mean, it's hard, you know. Uh, we're all sort of pygmy Christians when you really get to thinking about it. Isn't that true? We're all sort of, uh, sort of stunted in our spiritual growth, I think, when you think about believers in times past and the things that they endured and the things that they suffered. But oftentimes in this complacent and comfortable Christian environment that we live in, we lose sight of living for that which is truly eternal. Uh, you remember the story that the Lord Jesus told about the man that uh, built his barns and he filled them up and he built more barns and filled them up and built more barns and filled them up. And then he sat back and said that he could sit at ease and he could take his rest because he had uh, much food and much fruit laid up for many years. This is a picture of a person that is living for the temporal and for the immediate. But the Bible calls that man a fool. And here's why. Because he never took into account that in the next moment he could exit from that which is temporal and enter into that which is eternal. 
do you really believe there's a day of reckoning coming? Do you really believe there's a day coming when you'll have to give an account? There's interesting language that is used here. I want you to notice first off the glory that was proposed. It was a real glory in one sense, but it was a fleeting glory in another sense. I believe that Satan is correct when he says in verse number 6, All this power will I give thee in the glory of them, for that is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will I give it. He is the God of this world. If you don't believe that, just open your eyes, buy a newspaper, get on the Internet, turn the news on, you'll see in a heartbeat that the devil is the God of this world. He is the prince of the power of the air. There's no question about it. And so in a sense, he is speaking a half-truth. We know that a half-truth is a whole lie. But the part of the story he doesn't tell, let me say this, that any time the devil does speak any uh, part of a truth to you, he's not telling you the whole story. And he just tells part of the story. He says, all this power I have, and I can give it to anyone that I want to. We see a glory that was proposed, but then we see a guarantee that was promised. You know what Christ says? He says, get thee behind me, Satan. This is interesting to me. There's only one other time uh, in the Word of God where this phrasing is used in such a way. Whenever uh, Christ was speaking about His crucifixion and, and Peter began to rebuke Him and say, Be it far from you. And uh, the Lord looked at Peter and said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for thou savorest not the things uh, that be of God, but thou savorest the things that be of man. But that phrase, behind me, is very interesting because it's used a lot in the Bible. And in fact, one of the occasions I found, several of them really, was Christ using this same word and when he would say this, when he would say, follow me and I will make you fishers of men, he was using the same idea. Now, you know what he's saying when he's saying, follow me, don't you? He's saying, fall in line behind me. Can I say that the part of the story that Satan did not tell was this, that though his glory may have been real in that moment, it was a fleeting glory. Though he may have a kingdom now, his kingdom is coming to an end. And though that which is immediate may satisfy now, that which is eternal will last forever. And basically what Christ is saying to him is this. He looks at him and says, All this power I'll give to you if you'll fall down and worship me. And he looks at him and he says this, Satan, get in line behind me. Because all this power, all this glory, it belongs to God. What he's saying is this, there's coming a day. Let me read it to you, in fact. Philippians chapter 2 says this in verse number 9. Wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Satan saying, right now you're worshiping your Father. You ought to be worshiping me. And the Lord says, well, get in line behind me, because right now you're worshiping you, but one day you're going to bow the knee to me and bow the knee to the Father. The kingdom may be yours at the moment, but it's not yours for very long. You may be winning the fight right now, but the war has already been settled. Go ahead and get in line behind me and bow the knee to the one that's truly king. Can I remind you this evening that the immediate... It may be something that satisfies the flesh. And we live for the moment. Every one of us have a tendency to do that. 
We have a tendency to look no further than the tip of our nose. But I promise you, whether you're ready for it or not, one day you'll stand before Jesus Christ. One day you'll bow the knee to Him. Whether you're ready or not, and I, listen, I say that to believers tonight. I mean, whether you're ready or not, one day you will appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Go ahead and choose the immediate if you want. But one of these days you'll be judged in the eternal. And you'll have to live eternally with the results of how you've lived your life. We see that he tries to get him to choose the sensual over the spiritual and the immediate over the eternal. But finally, I want you to notice with me verse number 9. And he brought him to Jerusalem and set him on a pinnacle of the temple and said unto him, If thou be the Son of God, cast thyself down from hence. For it is written, He shall give his angels charge over thee to keep thee. And in their hands they shall bear thee up, lest at any time thou dash thy foot against a stone. And Jesus answering said unto him, It is said, Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. We see in this third temptation that he's trying to get him to choose the praise of the crowd over the path to the cross. You see, when Satan brought him to this pinnacle of the temple and told him to cast himself down, the temple was a very busy place. In fact, it was the heartbeat of the Jewish community. There would have been all sorts of people that would have been around, including, in fact, mostly the priestly crowd that rejected him. You understand that as he stood there on the pinnacle of that temple and looked downward, he would have probably seen the high priests that mocked him. He would have probably seen the scribes that tried to tempt him and trap him. He would have probably seen the wealthy individuals that refused to approach unto his teachings. And Satan looks at him and says this. Now, Jesus, you know there's a prophecy in the book of Psalms that your destiny is appointed, that you're the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world, that you are headed to the cross. And you say you're the Son of God, but these people down here, they don't believe you're the Son of God. And they won't believe it even when you're lifted up. But if you'll cast yourself off this temple, the psalmist promised that God would send legions of angels to bear you up that you wouldn't dash a foot against the stone because your death is appointed for Calvary. And here's your choice. You can either continue to be scorned and ridiculed and mocked and treated as a charlatan and a wine-bibber and illegitimate, and you can go to the cross or you can right now to prove to every single individual down there that you are who you say you are. You can cast yourself off this temple. You know, that's the choice that often you and I are faced with. Who are we going to please, man or God? I understand there was a time in the book of Acts where they had favor with God and man. I also understand it was pretty short-lived. Amen? I understand that we live in a world that hates the Lord Jesus Christ. And often we are going to have to choose between the exalted life and the crucified life. Let me tell you something. It's not popular being a Christian. I don't know if you're aware of that. But it's not real popular being a Christian. Chances are, if you truly live the Christian life, you're going to be ostracized. Those of us that are not persecuted, it's just a good indication we're not living much of a Christian life. Amen? Because all they that live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And so sometimes you have to make a choice whether you're going to be popular or whether you're going to be sanctified. 
whether you're going to be in the crowds that call your name and clap when you walk through, or whether you're going to live for an audience of one and be pleasing unto the Lord. Because I'll tell you right now, you cannot have it both ways. You'll have to make a choice. The Bible says that friendship with the world is enmity with God. Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is, is the enemy of God. We have to make a choice in this matter. And oftentimes the choice we must make is to say, I'd sooner walk alone, or at least uh, as far as mankind is concerned, I'd rather walk alone and please God than walk with the crowd and please man. You know, everybody talks about all these people flocking to the Lord Jesus, and they did early in His earthly ministry. I'm aware of that. And uh, all of this crowd that lacks the idea of this radical, rocking Christianity, they always talk about how that, oh, He challenged the conventionalism and, and all this. And, uh, you know, you understand that what He was challenging was man's tradition, right? Not the timeless truth of Scripture. It was man's tradition that He was challenging. And it's tradition that men will nail you to a cross over. Somebody say amen. Men won't nail you to a cross over scriptural truth. They'll nail you over, uh, to a cross over attacking their tradition. And uh, they always like to say, oh, he just had multitudes that came out to hear him and everybody loved him. Well, he did early on. But then he started talking about some things that began to upset people. It was not in keeping with polite conversation to say things like this, except ye eat my flesh and drink my blood, ye shall have no part in me. And the Bible says in John chapter 6, when he started preaching that, you know what that is, don't you? That's the crucified life. That's the path to the cross. He wasn't advocating cannibalism. What he was saying is this, I'm getting ready to die a death for you. Will you die a death for me? He was saying, I'm going to die a physical death that I might heal you spiritually. Will you be willing to die a spiritual death that you might live for me physically? He was saying, when I go to that cross, will you partake in that cross? The Bible says when he began to preach that way, there were some that turned back and would walk with him no more. You come down to the cross and there's just a handful there. Listen, I don't know why we're so stunned that Bible Christianity isn't real popular because it's never been real popular. Amen? I mean, it, it's not a big deal to draw a crowd. And I'm not up here to try to just uh, bash on churches that are big or whatever. I'm just merely saying this, that it should not shock us that there's some that turn and will walk with us no more because there were some that turned and walked with the Lord no more. Sometimes you have to make that choice. It's not a popular thing to live a crucified life. People don't understand it. And when you live a crucified life, it's offensive to those that are not because it's a condemnation of the self-serving and fleshly-centered life that they're living. And so they begin to get agitated with you when you start to live the crucified life. You ever met somebody that the, the nicer you were to them, the more angry they got with you? They don't understand it. They can't figure it. And sometimes in our life, this is one of the things we need to instill in our young people, that the crowd is rarely ever right and almost always wrong. I'm not against things just because everybody's for them. I just find that most of the things everybody's for, God is against. And I'd rather agree with God than agree with man. I mean, listen, our young people are facing things we never faced. And the world is getting increasingly worse and worse and worse. And the crowd is getting more angry 
more clearly you can hear when you turn on the TV, when you get on the internet, when you listen to the radio, when you open a newspaper, more clearly you can hear uh, society and even America crying out, crucify Him, crucify Him. We have no king but Caesar. Uh, We will not have this man to rule over us. I'm saying it's time that we're going to have to make some choices about the way that we live. That choice is going to be, are we willing to be out of step with society if it means being in step with the Savior? Are we willing to be at aught with the crowds if it means being close to the cross? Satan was looking at him and saying, why don't you go ahead and prove to everyone? That was the challenge of Satan. Go ahead and prove to everyone. But the choice of the Savior was verse number 12. He said, thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Uh, we use that terminology a lot, and I think we have a pretty good cultural understanding. I mean, I think our cultural understanding of that, of that concept is pretty in keeping with the scriptural understanding of it. And basically what he is saying is this. The will of God. You see, Satan knows the will of God, ultimately, right? So, say amen. I know it's Wednesday night. I know you have to sleep. Stick with me. Satan understands that his end is coming. And you know what essentially he was saying? He was saying this that God has appointed an end for my earthly ministry. God has appointed the cross for my path. And I will not be veered from it. I will not be drawn from it. I will not be pulled from it. Satan understood what the cross meant for him, I think. I think he understands that the cross was the death knell in him. And so in that moment, what Jesus is saying is this, your end is appointed just as my end is appointed. Uh, My end in my earthly ministry will mean the devastation of your power and of your ability. And there's nothing, just as there's nothing I can do or would do to change my end, there's nothing you can do to change your end. You know, it's an irrefutable truth and it's an immutable thing to understand that this world has a hatred of God and that to live for the Lord Jesus Christ will mean being out of step with this world. I know it's not a palatable truth, but it is a present truth tonight that you and I have to understand that we are at a crisis point. You know what a crisis is? A crisis is a a, a crossroads, a place of decision and of choice. And you and I tonight, as it comes to these three temptations, we have a choice in the matter. Tomorrow we're going to get up, we're going to live our lives. And I don't know if you're aware of this, but our lives, uh, our actions, our works, our good works, our bad works, our service, one of these days we're going to be judged for that at the judgment seat of Christ. You're going to be judged and I'm going to be judged for how we behave tomorrow when we wake up and the way that we live. And we're going to have some choices to make. Are we going to choose the spiritual over the sensual? In those moments when we could step out of the will of God and commit sin, we'll have a choice to make. Do we want the greater blessing or do we want that temporal bread? We're going to have to choose the eternal over the immediate. It's easy to want everything now, but understand this world is passing away. We're going to live forever through eternity. And so we better keep that truth in mind. And we're going to have to make up our minds that we'd rather walk the path to the cross than walk in the praise of the crowd. We're going to have to make up our minds. We'll walk with the Lord even if it's unpopular. We'll stand with God even if the world doesn't clap for it. They never have clapped for it. They won't start today. There's coming a day. Hey, listen, the devil's kingdom, there's a time clock on it. Amen? 
the, the sand is running down to the bottom of the hourglass. He has a kingdom at this moment, but their kingdoms crumble. There's a greater kingdom that is coming that will never crumble. And when the Ancient of Days sits down, His kingdom is eternal. And on that day, I, I believe we better understand that the way that we live is going to affect how things are for us. I'm not talking about a work salvation. I'm merely saying this. You miss opportunities to serve the Lord now, those opportunities will stay missed even in eternity. And we better live with that truth in our minds.